Today, Pastor Will is going to be speaking to us on the topic of the foolishness of shame. And uh, I'm very curious to see what, uh, where that's all going to lead, um, especially in connection with our verse this morning, which is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Your bragging isn't good. Don't you know that a tiny grain of yeast makes a whole batch of dough rise? Clean out the old yeast so you can be a new batch of dough, given that you're supposed to be unleavened bread. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So let's celebrate the feast with the unleavened bread of honesty and truth, not with old yeast or with the yeast of evil and wickedness. Pastor Will, please. Great. Thanks for that, Aaron. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is a, a wonderful little passage full of a whole bunch of weird stuff that you might not go home to tell your kids about. Uh, so, I found the safest passage to read in front of you this morning. Aaron did that very beautifully. Um, I'm going to be hopping around a little bit in this passage, so uh, if you have a Bible in front of you, you might uh, get more out of it. There are a few visitor Bibles uh, at the back. Uh, we have open Wi-Fi if you want to follow along on your app. <clears throat> Paul gives a, a very clear image here when he's talking about uh, yeast, and uh, <clears throat> he's talking about a a festival where they eat bread that doesn't have yeast in it. This is an important festival for, for Jews. Um, and a part of that is eating bread that hasn't had time to rise. It's, it's a remembrance of when they didn't have time as they were fleeing Egypt. But Paul builds on that and says we have to avoid letting yeast, the yeast of evil, the yeast of corruption, into our pure bread. This, uh, this becomes a, a metaphor of the church. When we find evil, when we know of evil, we have to remove it. This is what Paul is saying. But let's get into the bigger context of this. From time to time in, in church, we uh, kind of idealize the New Testament church. There are stories from the book of Acts where uh, the Christian get, Christians gathered together peacefully. Whenever somebody had any need, they just shared amongst themselves. There were, there were no, uh, nobody was more important than anybody else. There was no distinction between Jews, Greeks, slaves, free people, men, women. Didn't matter. This was a beautiful church. This is what we want to become. But the New Testament church also includes the church of Corinth. And so Paul is, is writing them a letter. Uh, and it seems to me it, it's kind of helpful to put these letters in context. So we are looking at other people's mail, essentially. When we read the book of Corinthians, uh, Paul was traveling through different parts of, of the Mediterranean uh, the land around the Mediterranean Sea. And he had gone, just like uh, our deacon, Paul Fomsuvan, uh, this Paul had gone around to uh, resource, to, to give leadership to different churches, to encourage the pastors that were there. And every now and then he would get a letter from them about how things were going. He would meet somebody else who was traveling. He would ask them questions about a particular church or community. 
And so, from time to time, out of concern for for these uh, communities, he would write them a letter. And so those letters were uh, carefully brought to these congregations. Then they were read aloud, uh, because not everybody in in the congregation could read. So somebody, the messenger, would read the letter to the whole church, But it it often wouldn't stop there. Uh, Somebody else from another community might be there and say, hey, you know what, Uh, the church in the next town over, I think they would appreciate hearing that. And so while the letter was there, this person would write out a copy and then they would bring it to the next church. And pretty soon people were passing these letters around uh, from, from one church to the next Uh, because they recognized there was wisdom and beauty in these letters. And and they didn't read them because they were Scripture, because they understood them to be holy or uh, having been uh, inspired by God uh, directly, necessarily. They just thought these were helpful. And so the letters of Paul would be distributed, the letters of Peter would, would be distributed, and some churches would have a whole bunch of letters and some wouldn't have any. While this pattern repeated, different church leaders would write these letters, and uh, the churches themselves would would receive them. Some of them had value. Some of them, uh, the letters weren't read more than once. And then over a few hundred years, some of these letters were recorded and collected and determined to actually be inspired. And so they were included in what we call the Bible. And a few things have to happen in a situation like that, because Paul is writing a letter here that includes some challenge and rebuke. So Paul is writing a letter to a group of people who have done something wrong. Well, what, is it, what has to happen for this letter of correction to be redistributed afterwards? Well, that church has to recognize that Paul was right. Right? The church has to say, hey, wait a second, uh, Paul is calling us out here on something we have done wrong, we need to fix it. Now, that's, that's tricky to do because we are all people of pride and the people of Corinth were no different. Now, some of the letters didn't survive, so even here in uh, chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my earlier letter." Well, this is 1 Corinthians. What's the earlier letter? Well, scholars will have different ideas, but the earlier letter didn't seem to make it in to, to the scriptures. But the church read this challenge, and it was valuable to them, and they kept it. Even though, right? So let's kind of flip that around. Let's say that our deacon Paul stays in Thailand um, and then he hears a rumor about something that's happening here at Trinity. He sends a letter to us and it's critical. Somebody's done something wrong. We as a church need to fix this problem. Uh, and then uh, somebody is, is visiting uh, from another church in another part of Okotoks or Calgary and they say, hey, that, that letter was well written. Could I take it with me to read it at my church? And we might say, okay, but maybe just leave out the part about how we're all a bunch of losers. Can you take that part out of the letter? That might be helpful. 
But somehow this letter survives with very specific mentions of what this church has been doing wrong. So not only uh, did the church recognize that they had done something wrong, the church recognized that other people would benefit from hearing about them having done something wrong. So even the fact that this letter survived uh, is a testament to the humility of the church of Corinth. Uh, So even before we read it, we know uh, that the people of Corinth had the capacity to learn and grow. Uh, And so that's why we're reading it, because we want to learn and grow. And this is what we're going to do together. So it begins, uh, chapter 5 begins with this. Uh, So I'm reading from the the common English, which is what the the visitor Bibles on the back table are as well. It says, everyone has heard that there is sexual immorality among you. This is a type of immorality that isn't even heard of among the Gentiles. A man, and if you have uh, vulnerable people around you, maybe cover their ears here. A man is having sex with his father's wife. Right? This, is, this is the word of God. I didn't, I didn't write this weird story to kind of titillate your ears. This is, this is directly from Scripture. So Paul is saying, listen, we have different standards for ourselves. We in the church expect ourselves to live better than the people around us. We claim to be following Uh, the son of God. We claim to be following a person who spoke truth. We want to be people of truth, so we have to be living better than the Gentiles. And yet, even the Gentiles around you know that this isn't right. Right? And, uh, you know, the Gentiles are just the outsiders, the non-Jews. Most of the church in Corinth would have been originally Jewish. So what's, what's happening here? Now, presumably, uh, whoever this man is, uh, his father has died, and uh, the relationship just transferred from from father to son. Now, we don't know if this is, presumably, doesn't, uh, because it says here his father's wife, this probably isn't his own mother. Uh, So this man's own mother had died, the father had remarried, probably someone uh, quite a bit younger, Whatever, none of this, I'm not saying any of this to make it more okay, but all of this is fairly common, uh, the way that uh, marriages, uh, remarriages would have happened. And yet, even within that context, it's clear in the law, in uh, biblical teaching, in the society around them, that this is not supposed to be happening. So, why is it happening? Why are they allowing it to happen? These are important questions. So Paul is uh, sort of presenting this story. He's, he's being clear about what he's... He's not beating around the bush. Uh, I've heard a rumor. I think you guys know what I'm talking about, but I re- really think you need to clean that up. He's being clear so it's, it's entirely unambiguous what he's talking about, what needs to change. Now, if everybody knows this is wrong, then why is it that the leaders of this church, the everyday people of this church, don't know that this is wrong? Or if they know that it's wrong, why aren't they doing anything about it? 
Well, there are probably a few contributing factors. One of the ideas that's put forward here is probably that the person who is uh, this, this man that Paul is talking about um, may very well have been um, a patron, uh, was probably a fairly wealthy person within the community. And in those days, just like today, wealthy people can sometimes get away with doing whatever they want. Um, and if there are a number of people in the congregation that are sort of beholden to this wealthy person, then they're not going to jeopardize their own stability by calling this person out. So if there is a, this wealthy person would have not really employees, um, but would sort of have people who benefited from his patronage. Right? So if this person has a lot of money and he wants artwork in his house, then he will have artists who he pays and they make art for him. So it's sort of like a, a boss and an employee, but it's, it's a little bit different than that. And so the people who are benefiting from that money know that if this person leaves the church, then their income is going to dry up. And so, is that what's happening here? We don't know for sure, uh, but it sounds plausible that there are a whole bunch of people who are letting their economic self-interest interfere with uh, what their conscience tells them is wrong. So, is, is that what's, what's happening here? Uh, another, there are all sorts of other ideas, uh, but we get another idea when we look at verse 2. So then Paul says... And you're proud of yourselves instead of being so upset that the one who did this thing is expelled from your community. So not only are they letting this go, but they're proud. They are bragging. This is the bragging that we read about in verse 6 before. Why are they bragging about this? This doesn't really make any sense within a church context until uh, we look at uh, the, the challenge here um, that you, you should be upset, right? If uh, we could kind of reword this in a lot of ways, but it seems to me one, one of the things that Paul would be saying here is you are proud, but you should be ashamed, right? There's a, there's a clear contrast here that pride is inappropriate in this context, and what would be appropriate is shame. And if you feel shame for what's happening, then you need to act based on your shame. Now, shame is a, is a tricky, tricky subject, too. Uh, I, was, I was part of a a family group, and we were planning a funeral. Uh, a beloved family member had passed away, and so the family had gotten together, and we were talking about songs that we would sing at the funeral. And they wanted this to be a time of celebration and joy, and uh, we were kind of flipping through the hymnal. They had a list of some that they thought were good, some they thought were were fun and uplifting, and they found one, and they were looking through the words, and uh, it talked about my sin and shame. You might know the song, uh, but they said, this is, this is uh, it's kind of d depressing. We, d we don't want to 
have this depressing idea in, in the funeral. It's not a depressing song. Uh, it's, it's a fun song. But because it mentioned shame, they wanted it left out of the funeral. And you can cut whatever songs you want out of funerals. That, that I didn't have a problem with that. But the notion of shame was uncomfortable for them. We in the church and uh, Mennonites have historically been experts at shame. Uh, that we feel like we need to be ashamed whenever something bad is happened, so much so that we carry it with us as part of our uh, identity as, as Mennonite Christians, uh, so much so that it gives people sometimes a kind of a, an identity crisis as they age that they need to throw off the shame of their parents and the church leaders that came before them. We don't like to have shame in this culture. We don't like to feel down about anything. We want to be positive and encouraging and happy all the time. Which, I think, gives, uh, gives way to other identity problems that uh, we talk to our therapists about. Uh, but it seems to be to me that the church in Corinth was equally uncomfortable with shame. And so, when someone is doing something wrong, uh, then the, there's a natural shame response, but then somebody in the church might stand up and say, hey, listen, we are not a people of shame anymore. We're not a people of shame anymore, so let's extend grace as much grace as we possibly can, and everything will be fine. We are a people of grace. And uh, that's what we want to be. We want to be forgiving. We want to be graceful. So when are we supposed to be gracious, and when are we supposed to have shame? I'd love to be able to, to give you an easy answer around that topic, but I can't. We, a lot of us have had to go through a transition of things that we used to find shameful, uh, but we later recognize are good and, and life-giving. And uh, there's, there's a long list of, of those things. Uh, so I thought it would be uh, helpful, instructive to, to go through some of those things. So, uh, <clears throat> simple example, um, coffee. Uh, when you're a child, coffee is not good. There's nothing alluring or interesting about coffee except that it's the thing that adults drink. And I want to be cool, I want to be grown up, so I want to drink the stuff that grown ups drink until you taste it, and then you wonder what the adults are thinking. This is terrible. And when people start drinking coffee, they usually start with as much cream and sugar uh, as they can. Because that's how you mask it. That's how you actually make it taste good. And uh, when, you, when you go into Starbucks, you can give a long list of instructions on how to specialize your coffee. Some of that makes you sound like a, like a connoisseur. Like, this is, this is the proper way that I've discerned that fits my palate, that fits my tongue. Um, and other coffee experts say, no, those are just the ways that you're masking the coffee flavor. You're not actually tasting the coffee. I had uh, a good conversation with my brother-in-law who's investing in a coffee shop, and he 
<clears throat> Since I was listening and interested, he poured me a half a dozen little taster cups of coffee, explaining to me the nuances of the flavors. And I was sort of with him, but I'm still that 10-year-old boy that doesn't like coffee at, at some level. Like, I don't quite get it. I'm like, okay, I see how this tasted different, but I don't know why one is better than the other. But as all of us age and we come to terms with our need for caffeine to get us going, or we come to terms with, hey, actually, I kind of like that, you know, that earthier flavor that coffee provides, then we think, okay, well, this, it's fine. This is a good time for me to have coffee. And you might look around and you say, well, this person seems to have a little bit too much coffee. There's a problem there. And some people say, no, there's in fact no such thing as too much coffee, whatever. So we find our place within the coffee spectrum. And nobody judges anybody else for having coffee, and that's, and that's a good thing. I wouldn't want to do that. But we go through a similar process as we age when it comes to alcohol. When you're a child... Uh, alcohol tastes really bad. And when you're a child, you don't understand why people would consume alcohol for the purpose of having more fun. Why can't you just have fun without it? And then as you age, you might hold on to those convictions, and good for you if you have, uh, or you might, through your own experience, recognize that in this life you build up a whole bunch of uh, in uh, some kind of inhibitions, things that kind of block you from doing and saying things, so then you see the purpose of that at that level. You might see the purpose of it at various levels, so then, okay, we're going we're gonna to allow ourselves to drink alcohol, but only in this context, only to these amounts, um, and only from these particular drinks on the menu. Now, as long as we do that, then we feel like, okay, we can do this. There's no reason for shame. Uh, I had a, a friend a while ago, a young woman. We grew up, uh, grew up together for a good amount of time. Uh, we had both kind of gone off to go to college, whatever, came back for a summer, and uh, we're hanging out, and she said, so do you, do you think it's okay to drink alcohol, like, you know, more than like a, a fun kind of coffee drink with some alcohol in it from whatever... It was very clear that the fun drink she was talking about was one of her favorites, right? So basically what she's asking is, do you think it's wrong to drink more alcohol than I drink? Right? She wasn't, you know, she was very clearly protecting herself. What I drink is fine, but do you think it's bad to drink more than that is, is kind of her, her question. And, and we do this, right? We, we've put a lot of work into what we think is right, uh, and nobody wants to do something that gives themselves shame for a long time. So you get comfortable with what you're doing. And uh, the same thing happens with, with our sexual activity. That we grow up with certain understandings. Uh, our life presents us with different circumstances, which challenges our understandings as children, the understandings that we get from uh, our families, from our religious institutions, from our educational settings. And then so we feel like we have to kind of adjust it. And when someone else deviates from that, then we might attach shame to that. And we find a place where we are comfortable so that we're not giving ourselves shame. Uh, when you give yourself a lot of shame, 
then you will find yourself uh, carrying a lot of anxiety uh, that will reveal itself down the road. This is quite relevant this week as well. I was uh, driving down McLeod on my way home Wednesday afternoon and uh, was hungry, so I pulled in uh, to a plaza where I was going to get some food. And then I saw this long lineup of people, uh, so long that the police were there and had blocked off part of the parking lot. I thought, what a... It's not a hockey game. What's... Oh, okay. Um, This was a store where they were selling marijuana. And the demand for it was so great that uh, it was disrupting traffic and the police had to be there. So we, as children, grow up with a certain understanding of marijuana. And as we get older, we hear different understandings, some of which we accept, some of which we reject. And then we have to find ourselves on a new spot. And a lot of times when we have an understanding about a a substance or a behavior, that's kind of bolstered by the people around us. And so when I was uh, growing up, my friends in school drank a lot of alcohol. My family didn't. My friends at church didn't. And so the fact that I didn't drink alcohol was fine. It didn't make me an outcast because I was rooted in my identity and my family and my church. And the same thing with marijuana, you would know there were people around us that were smoking it um, and consuming it in whatever ways. And, you know, some of us might have been tempted, but we had a certain understanding about whether it was right or wrong ethically. It was definitely wrong legally. And so we could be bolstered by the state saying this thing is wrong. Now we don't have that luxury anymore. And so, what do we do? When something is legally wrong, when something uh, is against the state, well, then the church is going to be automatically against it too. And so then we can attach, we feel like we can attach shame to people who misuse this substance. Well, now the rules change. So does the shame change? Do, Do the expectations from us change? Well, we're going to go through the same process where we're going to have to evaluate. Okay, well, in this context, maybe it's fine. seems like medicinal purposes are there. And then we're going to, okay, well, in this cultural context, it seems like they seem to be okay. And so probably most of us will come out in a similar position with marijuana as we did with alcohol. That there are people who take too much, and that's not a good thing. There are people who do uh, consume it in ways that are destructive to their own bodies, that are disrespectful to their neighbors. All of that we have to go through as a spiritual exercise because we don't want to be condemning other people or ourselves in, in a way that's unfair. So this is sort of what the church in Corinth is having to do around sexuality, around sexual practice. So Paul is uh, reminding them of what he has said before, that previous letter hasn't survived, Um, but we we pick that up from verse 9, so I'll I'll read that. Uh, Starting at verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my earlier letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And so by doing this, what he's saying is, listen, 
um, if you surround yourself by people who um, have different values from you, they will corrupt you. In the same way that if you surround yourself with people with your same values, who will reassure you, who will uh, reinforce those values, if you surround yourself with people with different values, they will corrupt and change your values. So this is what Paul is, is talking about here. Uh, and then he goes on to clarify himself. But I wasn't talking about the sexually immoral people in the outside world by any means, or the greedy or the swindlers or people who worship false gods. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world entirely. Right? So Paul has challenged the church in the past to separate themselves from sinful people. And now he's clarifying what he's saying. Listen, there are sinful people all around us. If you remove yourself from all of them, you're going to live in small, cloistered, separated from the world communities, and the effect of your ministry is really going to be changed. And different people within the church have, have done this before too. It isn't just a matter of disconnecting ourselves from the outside world. There are evils and uh, temptations in the outside world. Those temptations will continue even if we try to separate ourselves from them. That's not going to change. Um, so just as I kind of <clears throat> pulled up to my parking spot, the other side of, of, the, uh, of this store, uh, <clears throat> I'm walking towards my restaurant, a couple of guys walked up and they said, hey, uh, dude, you know... I don't get called dude very often, so it's kind of fun. <laughs> hey, uh, dude, you know where the weed store is? <laughs> and I did. I knew. Um, so, ethical dilemma, right? Was this an opportunity for me to tell them, hey, now listen, the substance you're interested in? Right, whatever. <clears throat> I knew where it was, so I said, oh, yeah, over there, there's a huge line. Um, <clears throat> and they would have gone there anyway. Didn't, uh, I wasn't going to change their, their buying decision. But the, the change has already happened, right? I, I don't get to uh, condemn them or judge them for, for doing that. And I have in the past. Uh, I was work, when I was working in, uh, in tobacco, that's a whole other ethical conversation. Uh, but I was working in tobacco and uh, you use your, your wrists and your fingers and, and if you have bad joints, uh, it can be an uncomfortable profession. And so, uh, as we were working, um, I came to understand that some of my co-workers uh, were smoking marijuana as we were going through the field. Uh, and they knew where I stood on the issue, so they were keeping it uh, private from me. Uh, but I couldn't handle this, and so uh, on one of the breaks, I told them, I said, if this is going to keep happening, I'm, I'm going home. Now, was that the right decision? Uh, maybe. Uh, I'm not, whatever. It's, it's what I did. Uh, now, what would happen if I would do that? Well, I wouldn't be able to. They would kick me off the field for that. And so, then I wouldn't be able to be bolstered by societal values. But was I supposed to be living by societal values anyway? And so the, the situation changes. So Paul is challenging these people, listen, you still have to make friends with the outside world. 
You still have to coexist with outsiders, even though they will be immoral in a long list of ways. So, he goes on to clarify, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who calls themselves brother or sister, who is sexually immoral, greedy, someone who worships false gods, an abusive person, a drunk, or a swindler. Don't even eat with anyone like this. Now, this, this is a harsh passage, uncomfortable for, for many of us. Uh, but there's a clear distinction that Paul is making. Listen, we need to be gracious to outsiders. But among ourselves, we keep each other accountable. And when we do that, when we come to terms with each other's activities and behaviors and thoughts then we are supposed to be doing this to bolster each other, to lift each other up, reassure each other of the values that we have. Then verse 12, what do I care about judging outsiders? Isn't it your job to judge insiders? God will judge outsiders. Expel the evil one from among you. Now, this isn't an intervention. Some of you are thinking, he's going to pick me. Uh, That's not what I'm doing. I'm not talking about specific people. I'm not talking about specific behaviors. But our expectations of shame and guilt begin with ourselves, begin with our community. And it's easy to look at somebody else who meets you in the parking lot and tells you about their intent to purchase something, and it's easy to attach shame to that person. Okay, well, I know what your values are. I know what you're worth in the world. I know what benefit you're going to provide to me. It's easy to do that from a judgmental framework, but that is not our job, right? God knows their story. God knows why they're consuming that. God knows what has brought them to that point. But it's our job to worry about us, but not in a, in a destructive, angry way, but we use shame as a way of motivating ourselves towards good, towards positive behavior, out of love for each other. We don't have uh, the luxury of Paul writing this letter to us. Uh, it'd be helpful if, if that happened, then we could say, okay, well, Paul has written to us about uh, our obsessions over uh, this product, or about our insistence to do things this way. Then we could say, okay, well, that seems to be God's instruction, but we don't have that luxury. We have to work that out together. And when we do that, we can't just say, okay, well, uh, you guys are clearly wrong, so fix your stuff so that you can be a part of us. We do this together. So what this means is we need to get to know each other. Uh, build each other up, be motivated by each other's good so that we can all be good and get better together. This isn't something that will happen by uh, gossip and exchanging rumors. This isn't going to happen uh, through legalism and judgment. This is going to happen out of love and concern for each other. And when we do that, then we will expel the evil from among us and replace it with good. And that is my prayer. Amen.